Are there countries that are particularly promising in terms of advancing stem cell research and treatments? Hi, this is the White Academy podcast, and I'm Burmi Balaram, VP of Education for White Academy. The White Academy podcast is a new monthly series bringing you the latest news, developments, and information from the world of stem cell research and technology. Our first guest is Dr. Peter Hollins, Chief Scientific Officer of Wide Cells. He oversees all scientific research and development activities for the company who are striving to transform the industry of cord blood banking through innovative stem cell services. Peter's illustrious career includes training at Cambridge University under the supervision of Nobel Laureate Professor Sir Robert Edwards, the inventor of IVF. He was senior embryologist at Bourne Hall, the first IVF clinic in the world, and is a world-renowned expert in stem cell technology. He's written extensively on the subject and has shared his experience with the Vatican, the House of Lords, and the Canadian Parliament. He joins us today to tell us about his work at Wide Cells, why he is passionate about developing stem cell technology, and how he sees the industry progressing over the next five to 10 years. So Peter, thank you for joining us today. For listeners who aren't as familiar with stem cell technology, can you start us off by giving us an overview of what we mean by this? Thanks, Bremi. Um, yes, um, stem cell technology, we, we, we talk about a range of different things and it covers quite a broad range of information and techniques and technology. So it's a big question. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try and summarize uh, because I think this is one of the really important things that we need to try and start to may allow people to understand better. And that, that's one of the things that we particularly want to do. So stem cell technology broadly means the use of stem cells in the treatment of disease. Um, and this can be two main types of stem cells. First of all, we have the so-called adult stem cells, and then we have embryonic stem cells, mm -hmm. so the two types. And most people, for some reason, seem to have always heard of embryonic stem cells, but never heard about adults, which is rather strange because adult stem cells are actually the, probably the most important ones. Um, these are the stem cells which we can, which have been transplanted since, well, I don't know, the, the early 1950s. Uh, if we take the example of bone marrow, bone marrow transplantation, it was the early 50s was the first transplant. And it is a, um, a, a technique which has now been used since that time. So it's nothing new, that's the first thing to say. And secondly, in the adult side, we are identifying different types of stem cells all the time. So for example, we've found stem cells in umbilical cord blood. We found them in the, the umbilical cord itself. We found them in the placenta, in teeth even. So all sorts of strange places, even in fat. Um, so we, we're finding stem cells throughout the body and each one of these stem cells has its own different properties and each one can treat different things. So the scope there is, is absolutely enormous. So adult stem cells is a big package that no one really understands beyond the stem cell community. And then embryonic stem cells is a separate one and this is where we extract stem cells from embryos. Now, these are embryos which would otherwise have been destroyed in IVF cycles. So we're talking about in vitro fertilization, spare embryos and the use of those. Now, in order to extract embryonic stem cells, you have to effectively destroy a human embryo. 
So this brings forward many legal, ethical, moral, religious objections to this particular process. So what we're finding is that adult stem cells, very easy to find, very easy to use. Embryonic stem cells, really difficult to get hold of and quite difficult to use. So that's really where we are today in, in stem cell technology. And what have been some of the key breakthroughs? Well, I think I mentioned earlier the first ever bone marrow transplant mm-hmm. was back in the 50s. Um, I think probably then we, we had a, about 15 years of research from the early 70s on cord blood, and then cord blood was discovered as a source of stem cells. Now, cord blood is particularly interesting because it allows us to treat blood disorders. So leukemias, anemias, thalassemia, all those kind of things. If you look up a textbook, there's about 80 different diseases in there. Uh, and all of those blood diseases can be treated by cord blood. So I think that was a, a big step forward. Then we have the discovery of all the other types of stem cells in the other tissues, which is very important. And also there's, there's, a, there's a type of stem cell that's been developed. It's a man-made cell, and it's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. And to do this, what you actually do is take a cell from the individual, say some skin or something like that, and uh, we introduce new genes into that cell, which turns it into a stem cell. These are called induced pluripotent stem cells. And and these are very interesting because they enable us to study um, individual diseases, Uh, For example, the neurodegenerative diseases you can study using these and also potentially even develop treatments. So really, really quite interesting. And that was a a more recent development. Um, So, yeah, the the technology has been going since about the 1950s and really developing day on day. Uh, the, The number of publications that we see and in stem cell technology in the medical literature is going up exponentially. Uh, and that's always a good sign for any subject. What drew you to working with stem cells? Oh, many, many, many years ago, I was uh, an undergraduate at Cambridge, uh, sat in a lecture there with a guy talking to me about stem cells. It was a, a, a fairly standard lecture, and it was talking about bone marrow at that time because that was the only stem cell available. And right at the very end, he, he said just one sentence, and he said, and in the future, we might find some other stem cells, and they could be used to treat disease. And a little light sort of lit up in my head, and I thought, wow, that sounds amazing, that's for me. And ever since that time, I, I've been interested in stem cells and stem cell technology, and uh, and here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> and how is your role at Wide Cells progressing the development of stem cell technology? Yeah, I mean, well, Wide Cells, very interesting company. I, I've been in this industry for about 30 years now. I've worked in the private sector, the public sector, NHS, academia. And, and Wide Cells has really taken it to a new level now because we've developed what we are describing as a stem cell services company. And within that, we're doing lots of interesting things. We have three divisions, one of which is cell plan, which is our uh, medical insurance. Uh, We have wide academy, which is our teaching and learning division. And we have wide cells, which is our stem cell processing and research division. I'm chief scientific officer, so I oversee all the science and all the divisions 
But most importantly, I suppose it's wide cells and that's because that's where all the stem cell activity as such is. And looking forward to the next few years when it'll really, really take off. And are you specializing in a particular area or can you tell us more about what you're currently focused on in the research that you're carrying out? Yeah, our, our research covers a range of things just now. We, we've got um, several projects underway. Um, we do contract research, so other people pay us to do research. We do collaborative research and we do in-house work as well. So R&D developing products. Some particular interesting ones, we, we've got a project on what we call laser activated stem cells. Um, this may sound a bit weird, but there is a medical laser that seems to interact with stem cells. Now, stem cells are quite clever on their own. They can regenerate tissue, they can cure certain diseases and so on. But when the stem cells have seen this laser, they seem to be able to do even more amazing things. Now, this laser has been developed by a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Todd Dovakaitis, who's um, chief executive of uh, a company called Kygenics. And he's been using this laser clinically for, for many years now and getting some amazing results. Um, but what he hasn't done and what we're doing for him is to start to understand exactly what this laser does. And this is really interesting because it's bringing up a complete new um, uh, area of study, which is called quantum biology. Uh, you may have heard of quantum physics, or quantum physics is describing the world in the subatomic particles uh, uh, type of way. And quantum biology is just the same, but it's expressing how organisms and cells operate at the subatomic level. So really cutting edge stuff. And what we think is that the laser interacts with the cells in some way and perhaps stimulates subatomic particles to change. And those changes are then reflected in the performance of the cell when it's transplanted. So we've, we've started that research just now. So hopefully we'll find out some interesting things. Other types of research, we have two uh, knowledge transfer partnerships with universities that we are developing. The first one is with Nottingham University. Uh, some brilliant people there in the materials science section have developed an artificial bone and they want to develop this artificial bone along with stem cells and the idea is to create a product which could actually cure osteoporosis. Now osteoporosis is a major problem uh, and we're all getting older, we're all surviving longer, our bones are always thinning. Um, in the UK alone osteoporosis costs about, costs the NHS about two billion a year. Uh, so that's the treatment and the complications, fractured hips, fractured heads of femur, quite nasty really. Now what, what we want to do with Nottingham is to develop a product where we have this artificial bone along with stem cells. This would be injected into the osteoporotic bone and it would actually prevent the disease from developing. It will prevent fractures and save a lot of uh, suffering and save a lot of money as well for the NHS. So we're working hard on that one. The second one is a uh, something that I mentioned. It's with um, Manchester Metropolitan University, some really clever people in there working on induced pluripotent stem cells. 
Now, at the moment, I mentioned these earlier, but at the moment, most of these cells are actually just in the research lab, so they're not really for clinical use. But what we want to do with Manchester Met is to develop a clinical-grade induced pluripotent stem cell bank so that people can access that and use them for clinical trial and for treatment. So that's another one that we're doing. And then we have various in-house R&D projects underway. So research is absolutely key for wide cells. It's it's one of our main activities and, and something that we all really enjoy. Oh, it sounds really fascinating. I mean, just taking it back to the company as a whole, mm-hmm. what sort of impact do you think your work at Wide Cells will have on the stem cell technology industry? Well, we're, we're very optimistic. We we think that we're going to be game changers in the stem cell world, and um, I certainly hope that, that that happens. We are listed as number 21 on the company's disruptive companies list, which is a good thing apparently being disruptive is good in this context (laughs) Um, and so I I think wide cells is going to make a big impact we've not spoken about the medical research cell plan but that is actually very important I went to a conference a year ago I think it was in London and people were talking about stem cell transplants and they said that the main barrier to transplantation is not clinical or medical, it's financial. So people want are needing transplants and the money simply isn't there to do it. Now, cell plan is a very interesting and very innovative medical uh, insurance product that we've developed. And what this does, it, it will actually uh, enable patients, once they've got the diagnosis, the first thing it provides is a, an expert second opinion. That expert second opinion also includes the recommendation of the best treatment centre. The product then pays for the treatment and uh, everything that goes along with that. Now, in the stem cell world, certainly using, for example, using cord blood to treat leukaemia, um, that is a very expensive procedure. Uh, The patient would be admitted into hospital, would have high-dose chemotherapy, would be kept in an isolation room for perhaps several months before being released after treatment. And so that can be massively expensive, anything from 300,000 to a million pounds, depending on complications and so on. So you can see there there's a a big... um, financial problem and secondly imagine a patient in London who's got a disease and the world's experts are all in New York and that patient's got to get there how do they do that how do they pay that well cell plan covers that as well so I I think that's a a really important thing and something that's really going to revolutionize how stem cells are used in the future A present cell plan covers cord blood transplantation, which is for the treatment of blood disorders. And it also covers the, um, there's there's a clinical trial in Duke University in in the States. A good colleague called Joanne Kurtzberg is running this. And what they're doing there is they're assessing the use of cord blood in the treatment of cerebral palsy. Um, Cerebral palsy is a neurological disease that is caused sometimes by lack of oxygen during birth and that kind of thing. And it can cause some quite severe disabilities in some people. And um, Kurtzberg and her team are getting some really good results using cord blood uh, to treat cerebral palsy. And Salplan would also cover 
the cost of attending um, that that particular clinical trial. So so that that's really important and, and really innovative. Um, and secondly, I've talked about research and wide cells, but uh, also very importantly, Wide Academy. Uh, wide Academy is one of our divisions, and Wide Academy is our teaching and learning side. And this is where we are going to try to start to get the me the stem cell message across, um, both to the general public, to physicians, to patients to the media, to anyone who's interested really, so that we can start to all understand stem cells, understand what they can do and what they can't do, and, and take it forward in a, in a more sensible way. So yeah, I think we'll have a big impact going forward. That's really interesting. So in terms of what excites you most about the potential of stem cell technology, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, how you think this technology is going to advance the field of regenerative medicine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of hype over the years mm. in stem cells. Um, I remember when we first developed embryonic stem cells, people were saying this is going to cure everything and this will be the end of disease, and it didn't happen. So I, I think in regenerative medicine in particular, you have to be very careful about hype. Um, things have to go through clinical trial. A clinical trial can take up to five years just to complete. And at that time, you are then ready to start offering that treatment as a, as a routine. Uh, but even then, there might be a little bit of caution and a little bit of resistance. Um, but I think the example of cord blood is a good one because we've got, we're now treating over 80 diseases with cord blood. And we're also treating um, cerebral palsy in clinical trial. So that, that's a really interesting one. But there are other stem cells as well from the, from the cord tissue, from the placenta, from fat and from teeth. Um, these are called mesenchymal stem cells. And these can do great things. They can repair things like bone and connective tissue and nerves. So. Uh, we can see using those type of stem cells in the future in clinical trial to treat neurodegenerative disease, uh, diabetes, heart disease, tendon damage, bone damage, all sorts of things which could be potentially treated. It's always extremely difficult, though, to try and put some sort of timetable on this. Um, I'm, I'm always very reluctant to do that, but... Um, you know, I, I first started in stem cell work in 1982, uh, and here we are, God knows how many years later, and we're just starting to bring bring things to the clinic. So I'm hoping before I uh, disappear that we can have some routine treatments in the clinic. That would be absolutely brilliant. So you mentioned this this sort of issue of hype, and I was just wondering how you tread that line between hype and hope. So how do you talk about the things yeah. that are exciting without yeah. kind of misrepresenting what's possible? Yeah, yeah. Hype and hope is, is a great one. It's something that I've, I've discussed many times over the years. Um, I, th I think the, the, the thing is, it, it's all to do with education. If people understand what we're saying about stem cells, then they can make informed decisions about what they want to do and whether they want to be involved in clinical trial and so on and so forth. So I think education is absolutely key in trying to resolve the difference between hype and hope. 
Um, our good friends in the media also need to <laughs> to help us a little bit because um, sometimes some of the reports are a bit over-optimistic and uh, if it's a quiet week on news then you sometimes find a stem cell story on the front page and quite often it's not terribly helpful it, it's it's largely um it's largely hype in that case but i think hype and hope is interesting and our priority is to ensure that people understand what the technology is all about which at the present very few people actually do. If you ask someone on the street about stem cells, they'll probably say, oh yeah, they come from embryos, I think. And that's about as far as it goes. So there's a lot to do on that education side. But once people understand, and, and there's nothing terribly difficult, you don't have to be a, a stem cell biologist to understand all this stuff. Once they understand, they can make informed decisions and then hope will, come, will become uh, realistic. So you've worked abroad in countries like Canada and India, mm -hmm. and I just was wondering, how does the UK differ in its approach to promoting and developing stem cell technology? So would you say that the mm. government and regulatory bodies are supportive um, and that both healthcare professionals and citizens are as or more open to stem cell research and treatment? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, um I think I think the UK in many ways is unique, as we all know, <laughs> and um, as stem cells is no exception. Um, when I worked in Canada, for example, uh, it was routine to tell pregnant women about, for example, cord blood storage. So the pregnant woman would be at the prenatal clinic and the physician would say and don't forget you've, you've got the options you can you can store cord blood if you want to uh, you can donate it to a public bank you can keep it privately or you can discard it if you want to and they give them the information the patient goes off and thinks about it and makes their own decision which is how it should be I think um, unfortunately in the UK especially on cord blood we're a bit more uh, nanny state as it were um, because we have a situation where the relevant royal colleges have said that um, cord blood private storage is not a, a useful thing to do uh, and basically don't recommend it to anyone um, and this means that their uh, members so the midwives and the obstetricians they don't talk to the patients about it so the patients don't know. So it all it's all a bit of a vicious circle, really. Um, so I've spoken to many pregnant women over the years. My, my other specialism is um, IVF. Um, so I've worked in IVF clinics and, and uh, been involved in all that side of things. And when you speak to many pregnant women and ask them about cord blood stem cells, they, they say, no, never heard of it. Or what's that? or no one told me and I'm really angry now. <laughs> so I think I think we really need to get our act together in the UK. We need to start being a little bit more open when discussing stem cell technology. Uh, we need to give the public better information, clearer information, and once again, this basic education so that they understand 
Um, you know, the average person is, is more than capable of making informed consent if they've got the information. But if you don't tell them, they can't. So, yeah, I, I think I think we, we need to work on that. And that's one of the challenges that we've got coming up in the next few years. Can you expand on what concerns the Royal Colleges have in this area? Yes, yeah, the, the Royal College of Ubs and Gyne and the Royal College of Midwives in the UK have issued opinion papers on private cord blood storage. And um, they've come to the conclusion that private cord blood storage is not to be recommended. And their rationale is that the, the chance of use is very low. Now, I, I've, I've been involved in private storage for many years, cord blood storage, and I've been involved in many transplants. And whilst the numbers of those transplants are relatively low, um, those families who've had a transplant as a result of private storage uh, would think that's a very good thing. Um, and I'm forever astonished that the Royal Colleges decide that this is not a bad thing. Uh, but more importantly, the fact that the, the choice is not given to, to people in the UK. I think that's probably the most worrying thing. I mean, the, the Royal Colleges can have any opinion that they want to have, and that's fine, and I don't particularly want to argue with them. But what I'm saying is that the information should still be given to patients so that they can make an informed decision. So it's as simple as that, really. And what sort of take-up is there in Canada? In Canada, we're looking at, a, for private cord blood storage, we're looking at a rate of about 3 to 4% of deliveries, um, and it's less than one half of 1% in the UK. Okay, so there's quite a difference. Yeah, yeah. And there's, so there's a difference between private cord blood banking and public cord blood banking, yes. and the NHS does have a, a public cord blood bank, so yes, do they refer good. people to... To the public one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's the, the that that's the strange thing. The 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 the, um, the 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 pregnant ladies are told that they can donate um, to the public bank, but you have to have um, you have to deliver in certain hospitals. The NHS is not able to cover every hospital for for corpora donation. So first of all, you have to be in a specific hospital, which is largely the ones around London. Um, and uh, and secondly, you you need to know about it. They don't know <laughs> about the options, <laughs> so it's 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 another one of these horrible vicious circles that we have, uh, which we hope to break in the near future. Are there other countries that are particularly promising in terms of advancing stem cell research and treatments? Yeah, yeah. In uh, about a month's time, I'm I'm off to uh, Calcutta in India. And I'll be visiting the Calcutta School of uh, um, Tropical Medicine, Department of Regenerative Medicine. And they have done some amazing work with, with stem cells. And we are going to be looking at um, collaborative research with them. Um, they've, they've particularly done interesting work with cord blood. Um, they're using cord blood not only for a transplant, but also as a transfusion product. So what I mean here is that, you know, uh, adults donate blood and the blood goes into the bank and then it's used for patients. And then the NHSBT 
then decide that actually they don't have enough blood and there's a panic and we often see it in the news that we're running out of blood. Well, cord blood, the, the exact same stuff that we collect for transplants, the cord blood can be used for transfusion. So if someone's had surgery or someone has had trauma and they need a, a transfusion, they can receive cord blood. Now, cord blood is much more accessible than adult donations. For an adult donation, you've got, first of all, you've got to convince the adult to come in, and then you've got to do the collection and give them a cup of tea and a biscuit and make sure everything's happy. Um, so it's quite a laborious project, product, but the, there are babies being born every minute in the UK, and there is cord blood there that could be used as a transfusion product, which could save lives and it's all been discarded um so we we need to be looking at these things we need to be understanding and debating and deciding at the very highest level this, this should be at government level we need to start to understand what these cells can do and their potential because if you imagine, um, uh, I mean, the, the guys in Calcutta have used cord blood as transfusion for many years now, and their results are brilliant. And there's several reasons for that. First of all, cord blood contains uh, fetal haemoglobin, which carries more oxygen than, the, than adult haemoglobin, so the blood is, oxygenates better. Um, cord blood contains many proteins which uh, can help repair uh, um, damaged tissue and so on and it also contains stem cells which could contribute to the overall recovery so so those patients that receive cord blood as a transfusion are actually recovering quicker from their trauma or from their surgery purely because they're receiving cord blood as a transfusion so so I think that's um, a very interesting thing uh, and, the, and the guys over there are also working on uh, amniotic fluid placenta and various other things, some amazing work. And we will be developing further the collaborations with, with these people, and also in particular to bring cord blood transfusion to the UK, which I think would have a massive impact on the way in which people uh, recover from surgery and trauma. There's growing excitement about the field of biotechnology. Mm -hmm. So what's the connection here with stem cells and how do you see this developing in future? All this biotechnology stuff is, is really interesting and it really links into the, for example, the stuff that we're doing with the osteoporosis work. So we're collaborating with material science experts, which is all the biotech side, and then we're bringing in the stem cells. So we've got the academics with all the artificial bone experience. We've got us with all the clinical grade GMP stem cell experience. Bring those two together and you can make some exciting products. So I think, yeah, working with biotech is, is very important for the future. And gene editing? Gene editing is, is a bit scary. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I mentioned a while back I was in I was in IVF and I, and I trained with the guys that invented IVF, uh, Edwards and Steptoe, back in the good old days, and we started the first ever IVF clinic, and used to have Arab sheikhs driving up the coming up the drive for their treatment with their entourage. 
So really exciting times, and, and this was right at the very start of IVF. And just recently, actually, there have been reports in the, in the medical literature about so-called gene editing, um, which to me, I'm a bit old-fashioned, is a little bit scary. Um, I, I, I tend to get a little bit worried when, when scientists start to interfere with what is the beginning of life, because my concern is that even though you may help some people with some very rare diseases, my concern is what will happen in generations to come. And we just don't know. When, when, when we started IVF and, uh, and the first baby was born, we were very pleased that it was born, but also very worried about what we'd done because we didn't know at that stage whether or not that baby would be healthy, whether or not it would grow on normally or anything, really. It was a, it was a first. Now, luckily, Louise Brown, who was the first baby, is perfectly healthy. She's got kids of her own now, and there are millions of IVF babies around the world. And so we were lucky. <laughs> but what we did in making IVF was really quite basic compared to what people are doing now, messing around with the genes and the the basic biology of the embryo. So it does worry me a bit. Um, I'm a bit old-fashioned. I'd prefer just to use stem cells myself. So I think that we seem to be touching on the ethical implications here, and I think mm. that some listeners uh, may have heard about some of the, the ethical concerns. Yeah. And I was just hoping that you could speak to us more about what the ethical implications are here and how these might be resolved in the industry. Mm. Okay. So with adult stem cells, there are actually no objections whatsoever. Um, all of the adult stem cells that we talk about are derived from what you might call medical waste. So, for example, if you have your wisdom tooth extracted because it's painful and it's uh, growing in the wrong direction, inside that tooth there are stem cells which can be harvested and stored and otherwise it would go into the medical waste. Same with cord blood, same with cord tissue, placenta, adipose tissue when people have liposuction, that goes to the medical waste. All of these products contain really valuable stem cells for which there is no legal, moral, ethical objection to whatsoever. And because of the very nature, they're just otherwise thrown away. Uh, where where the problems arise, and I mentioned it earlier, is with embryonic stem cells, because to create embryonic stem cells, you effectively have to destroy a human embryo. And once again, people get very worried about that, quite rightly, I suppose. Um, you mentioned right at the start, I, I was at the Vatican and, and uh, at, at conferences, and, and of course, the, the Vatican are very pleased to promote adult stem cells because they don't like the concept of embryonic at all. So the, the, there's that going on. But in our field and, and the, the work that we do in wide cells, there, there are no objections at all. In fact, people actively encourage us to do it. So um, I, I can't see any problems for, from our point of view in the future. 
How can we expect the stem cell technology industry to change over the next five to 10 years? Um, well, once again, I'm not, I'm not a great one for crystal balls. Um, I think uh, some of the stuff that we're doing, I mean, our, our laser activated research, if we can start to understand what that does and how it does it, that could change the way we think about biology and not e e uh, let alone stem cells. Um, so I think that could be really good. Uh, and also new products. Um, there are there are literally hundreds of clinical trials underway for stem cells at the moment to treat heart disease, nerve damage, diabetes, uh, neurodegenerative disease, all, all the big problems in, in clinical practice. And um, a lot of these are either well underway or coming to the end now. So hopefully a lot of those will be quite positive and we'll start to see treatments coming to the clinic and it will be the role of people like Wide Cells to provide those stem cells for treatment. So just going back to regulation, which you were talking about earlier, at what level does this need to happen? So party conferences are happening right now, for example. Would yeah. you would you approach <laughs> anybody um, at a you know in government, and what would you tell them about what needs to change? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, government is is quite good. There is an all party parliamentary group on stem cell technology, which I I I go to when when I can. And um, the, the, the MPs in general terms are really quite happy to discuss stem cell technology. Um, but I, I think it's, it's what we mentioned earlier. We need to start to be more open and provide more information to people so that they can understand what the options are, um, what the treatment options are, what the research options are so that people can understand more and also become more involved with, with the the overall process. Um, and I know many people couldn't care less about stem cells, but they, they still will have a, a general interest because um, we're all living longer, we're all developing more disease, we're, we're finding new diseases all the time. And so in the future, we'll find that almost every family will come to some point where having the availability of stem cells for treatment could be life or death for a family member. So it's it's, it's re really important. And in terms of, of government, I, I think it should be discussed at the highest level. Um, we should be speaking to the health secretary. We should be discussing things about stem cells and we should be leading the world in this because the Britain has traditionally led the world in, in this kind of technology. It sounds like there might be a cultural shift that needs to happen within healthcare in order to be able to promote. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And we've, got, we've got a lot of politics to, to work out and... Um, a lot of egos to massage, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can get around all of that and and make some, make some good progress. Great, thank you for your time today, Peter, and okay. to our listeners for tuning in. You can follow updates from White Academy and look out for future podcasts in this series by following White Academy on Twitter.